Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, hi, yeah. Uh, my wife and I are, are so thankful to be here. And so, yeah, we're, we're grateful that you've given us the opportunity to come up here and for me to share the word with you this morning. We're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 20. So if you go ahead and turn in your Bible there, it's the, we're going to look at verses 24 to 31, which is the story known in, uh, in popular culture as the story of Doubting Thomas. As you can see, though, I've, I've titled the sermon, Believing Thomas. For yes, John does present him, Thomas, as a doubter. You can't get past that. But John's emphasis is not that he's a person who doubts, but that he's a person who doubted and came to believe. Most of all, Thomas is someone who believes, and in that way, we are supposed to emulate him. As we ourselves struggle with our various kinds of unbelief and doubt, we are to be like Thomas and come to believe in the risen Christ. And so I'll go ahead and and read now. Uh, from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we study this passage, and really as you study any passage in the Bible, it's really important that you don't lose the forest for the trees. Uh, The significance that John gives to this passage here isn't just found in these seven verses. The significance of the passage is only found when you look at the whole forest of the whole Gospel of John. Um, John, you know, as you can see, there's 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, but the 21st chapter, it's like an epilogue. So kind of the main uh, content of the book ends here in chapter 20. So John is tying up a whole bunch of themes that he's been developing throughout his Gospel, and it culminates here in our passage. And so we're going to go ahead and look now, if you could turn to John chapter 1, and we're going to see um, the most important theme from our passage, uh, John first developing it. Because what we have here with the story of Thomas is the story of a skeptic turned believer. Uh, John, as we read there, he's writing this gospel that's, uh, that people might believe. And so throughout the gospel, he, he gives examples of people coming to believe in Christ. And yet, as he does here in chapter 1 and then chapter 20, he wants to show that the people that come to believe in Christ aren't just the people that are going to believe anyways. It's not just Jesus' buddies. It's not the people who just benefit from him being the Messiah. Even the people who are reluctant to believe, this gospel is enough to persuade them and convince them. And so John is echoing that theme that he establishes here in John chapter 1. And the significance of that, that this skeptic-turned-believer story, it's something that's convincing with any subject, you know? If you ask somebody, what would you think of that movie? And they tell you, well, you know I usually hate romance movies, uh, but man, Pride and Prejudice is just a great film. What can I say? Oh, that makes you think, oh, this is a really good movie. If someone who usually hates it likes it, there's probably something to it. 
And, and we, it's the same thing when it comes to people who converted to Christianity, right? We all love the story of the ardent atheist who hated Christianity, and yet when he's finally confronted with the evidence, my God changes his heart and he sees the truth. That's what John is doing here. And there's a, a good story I came across uh, this past week about one of these ardent atheists. His name is William Mitchell Ramsey. He was born in 1852, a year after another famous William Mitchell Ramsey was born, who discovered some elements on the periodic table. Don't get them mixed up if you Google them later. I did. Um, This guy was born in 1852, also, though, a scholar and academic. He was trained at Oxford and Aberdeen and was a professor at Aberdeen. He was also trained at this place in Germany called the Tübingen School. And the Tübingen School is an awful place. That's the the originator of all kinds of higher criticism against the Bible. They had the, the first ideas that we shouldn't trust any of the events of the New Testament. It's all just made up garbage. So they're, they're a very bad place. And he was trained there. And in his day, he was this atheist who was known uh, as the greatest expert on the area in which the Bible took place, Asia Minor. So Turkey, Greece, Israel. He was the world's foremost archaeological, geolog- uh, geographical expert on that area. And one day he said, okay, I've had enough of all these Christians saying that the book of Acts is reliable. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do a little archaeological expedition. I'm going to show that this Luke guy, he was writing hundreds of years after Jesus lived and I'm going to prove it's just all bunk. And so he did his little expedition and eventually wrote a book on his conclusions. And, uh, and he begins it this way saying, I may fairly claim to have entered on this investigation without any prejudice in favor of the conclusion which I shall now attempt to justify to the reader. On the contrary, I began with a mind unfavorable to it, for the ingenuity and apparent completeness of the Tubigan theory of that school he went to had at one time quite convinced me. He says, I, I had no reason to believe any of this stuff. I was completely against it. I had every prejudice against it, but this is what he finds. That is per, page 85 of his book. Further studies show that the book acts could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. Later, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians. It's a great story, right? He hates Christianity. He goes there to to disprove it here in his intellectual arrogance, and the evidence convinces him otherwise. And again, we, we love it because it says something about the evidence. He lost a bunch of stuff by becoming a Christian. But the the truth, the the claims of Christianity were too strong. And John is getting at the same thing. He too wants to appeal to the skeptic. He wants to show, listen, the evidence for Christianity is for those who are even might lose something when they believe, even those who have doubts. And so, like I said before, John chapter 1, you have verse 1 to 18 as the prologue. Then you have a bunch of stories of people coming to believe in Christ for the first time, the first disciples. And then John punctuates it by saying, hey, listen, not all of them came just when Jesus said, follow me. Some of them needed some convincing. So look then at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I hope you saw the parallels there between the story of Nathaniel and the story of Thomas. It starts off with someone coming and telling them, hey, we found something out about Jesus. And then this person, Nathaniel and Thomas, they respond with doubt. And Nathaniel's doubt, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's actually kind of a legitimate thing. Uh, as, as you can see, Jesus compliments Nathaniel. He says he's a man with whom there is no deceit. He was an honorable man of integrity and honesty. And he seemed to know his Bible too. He would have known the Messiah doesn't come out of Nazareth. Nazareth was nothing. The Messiah, all the great people, they come out of Judah, which is down in the south. Nazareth is up in the north. Now, of course, we have information that he didn't, right? We know Jesus was really born down in Judah. He was born in the city of David. Nathaniel couldn't have known that, though, and so he has a legitimate objection. And the Messiah doesn't come out of Nazareth. Who's this guy? But then he's convinced because Jesus comes to him, and what does he do? He displays his omniscience. He tells Nathaniel that he knows about something he was doing when Jesus was not there. And it's from that, just like Thomas, from this demonstration of omniscience, that Nathaniel believes, and he has a confession about Jesus' identity. And then, just like Thomas, Jesus gives a question about that belief. He says, is it because I said I saw you under the fig tree that you believe? You will see greater things than these. I think Jesus is actually complimenting Nathaniel there. He's saying, that was a rather small miracle from the things that you're going to see, and you believed on that, and that's good. But you're going to see greater stuff very soon. Okay, now let's go back to John chapter 20. Just as in John chapter 1, you had these stories of people coming to believe in Christ, and then you end with the skeptic, John does the same thing here in chapter 20, after Jesus has resurrected. It's like Jesus has to have all of his disciples believe again. And so the, the beginning of John chapter 20 is John showing how the disciples came to believe again in Jesus. None of the disciples, when Jesus died, said, man, I'm looking for Sunday when Jesus is alive again. That's going to be great. Uh, aren't you guys glad he told us that? No. They all doubted. They all lost their belief. They thought he was dead forever. And so they come again to believe in John chapter 20. And here, though, John again ends with the skeptic turned believer. And uh, as, as we look again in, in, at, at verse 24 and 25, uh, we, we see the first point. What we're going to see in this passage is six lessons for those with imperfect faith. See, John presents Thomas not just as the story of Thomas, but he's supposed to be our example. He is the person who John is writing to, the reader, who's read this whole gospel, has seen all the miracles of Jesus, and still says, though, like Thomas, I wish I could just see the Lord. Yeah, that, that witness is stuff, but I just want to see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands. And so that's, that's the first lesson, though, is, is from verse 25, is that even believers doubt. Thomas had seen every miracle of the Lord, and, and he was not... As he's depicted in the Gospel of John, he's an earnest man who truly believes in Christ. He's a little dull-witted at places, but he truly loves and follows Christ. In John chapter 11, this is a good example, Jesus says, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. And they all knew that everybody in Jerusalem was trying to kill Jesus. And so Thomas goes, well, let's go with him and die with him then. <laughs> you know, dull-witted, he's not thinking that Jesus, is, he kind of thinks that Jesus is, is a little stupid to go and get killed, but Thomas is dedicated. He says, I'll go die with him then. He's earnest, but even he doubts. 
And again, his doubt is something that we can relate to. That he just wants to see the resurrected Lord. And he's actually not asking for anything special. All the other disciples got to see the resurrected Lord. He just wants what they had. And in that way, he's our representative. We say, yes, we've heard about these other people seeing Jesus. I just want to see him with my own eyes. And because of that, we have unbelief. Whether it's somebody... Uh, who's never believed in Christ, who's still trying, seeing if Christianity is true and they lack that unbelief, Thomas represents you. He also represents the person who has long been a Christian, but all of a sudden doubts have come and crept in. Thomas is the one for you. Or if you're somebody who, who knows more certain than anything that Jesus is God, that he rose from the dead, but nevertheless, in the midst of your pain, it's hard to believe that Jesus loves you. And you think, man, if only I could see Jesus before me and he could tell me that everything is okay. I would love that. And that too is a lack of faith. See, we all in our different ways have our unbelief. There's hardly been any disciple who didn't have their unbelief. Abraham, uh, he lacked faith in God and so he took Hagar as his wife, not believing the promises of God. Moses, he lacked faith when he struck the rock uh, doing what God didn't want him to do. Job, of course, has his doubt. Elijah has his doubt when he goes away in the cave and thinks I'm the only one left. God's abandoned me. We see in the New Testament too. What's Jesus' constant refrain? Oh, you of little faith. The disciples going and waking Jesus up. Don't you care for us? You're going to let us die? They forgot who he is. Remember Jesus' standard of faith. Remember how small it is. If you only had the faith of a mustard seed, you could cast this mountain into the sea. That's a standard for us, and it's very low. All of us struggle to believe. All of us say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that is who John is writing here. That's the first lesson, even believers doubt. The second is this, and it's found in verse 27, that Jesus has mercy on those who doubt. That's what Jude verse 22 says. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Jesus, of course, could have shown up and said, Thomas, Come on, man. You've seen all those miracles I did. You heard me all these years, and it's not enough? Listen, these guys are your friends. You've been around them. You think they're going to lie to you now? But no, he's not that way. He comes to him and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand. Place it on my side. Jesus says to Thomas, listen, Thomas, if you think that what you need is to see me and touch me, well, then go ahead. In, in your unbelief, Jesus is not harsh. He is patient and kind. He knows that you are but dust. He knows that you have a frail and fickle mind. He knows what, what harasses and makes things difficult for you, and he is compassionate to you. He, he will never despise the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He is always eager to help those who humbly come before him and confess that they are weak, that they're not omniscient. None of us are. And so all of us then struggle with this faith. But he's kind to us. I, I love how Alistair Begg put it. He said this. He said, Jesus will do whatever it takes to satisfy your intellectual integrity, but never your intellectual arrogance. If you're like Nathaniel and there's just something that you don't get that just means, well, like, Christianity can't be true because of this you know, contradictory statement. I just need this explained to me. We'll take that to the Lord. He will help you. Christianity is true, and it is consonant with every aspect of reality. And it can be proven true if you seek it with a humble heart. What's the first principle about knowledge? 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the starting point. And if you come with that humility before the Lord, he will be kind to you and he will give you what you need. But he will never satisfy the intellectually arrogant, those who think of objection after objection to just justify their sin. They don't want Christianity to be true, and so they think of every possible reason it couldn't be true. And no, Jesus isn't going to respond to those. You cannot test the Lord your God. You you can't be like Satan telling to Jesus, hey, just jump off this cliff, just do this miracle, and then I'll believe. He's not going to play games like that. But if you humbly are seeking the truth, he will give it to you. Those who knock, the door will be open to. That's that's point two. Jesus has mercy on those who doubt. Uh, Lesson number three is also found in verse 27. It's also found in, in verse 31, and it's this. That proof and belief are not mutually exclusive. Proof and belief are not mutually exclusive. Some people think that to believe in Christianity or any other worldview, you have to have every possible objection met. They think that you can just reason to it. And they reject Christianity because Christianity can't answer every single objection they could possibly think of. But that that will never work. Uh, The human mind has an unbelievable capacity uh, to think of the most obscure explanations of the simplest events. You know, you can see it in your own life. I notice in my life, whenever I do something wrong and I really mess up, what's the first thing I do? I start thinking of every possible way it could somehow be someone else's fault. And I get into the most strange mental gymnastics that it's not really me who did it, but it's, it's everybody else. Uh, recently, I had lost my AirPods, and in like 30 minutes, you know, and I'm really frustrated. And um, I went jokingly and told my wife, my AirPods don't have a case. Hers has this blue case. And I'm like, I know what happened, Sarah. You took your AirPods out of your case, put mine in your case, and then yours are the ones that are lost. (laughs) And uh, the reason I said it, though, is because, you know, as I'm looking for them, that's what I'm thinking. How could this be Sarah's fault? How could it not be my fault I lost it? (laughs) And that's what we do. And that's what someone does with the gospel. If they want to continue in their sin, if they want to justify themselves, they're going to find it. They'll find a way to explain why Christianity isn't true. And, and, and that's what you can see here. Uh, Jesus says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Uh, Jesus gave him irrefutable evidence, right? He, he showed up in his resurrected body and he said, you can feel my fingers. You can't beat that. But nevertheless, Jesus still has to tell Thomas a command. And and it's a very interesting command. In in the ESV, it's translated, do not believe, but believe. And um, actually, uh, in in the Greek, John uses the word to believe all the time throughout the gospel. But it's always a verb. This is the only time in the whole gospel that it's used as an adjective. That is, is it's not so much a command of Jesus telling him, Thomas, to do something, but he's telling him to have a quality. He's saying, do not be unbelieving, but believing. That's the thing. He, he appeals to a, a characteristic of Thomas. He says, again, this evidence, it's not simply that you have to be one who fears the Lord. You have to be someone who is humble and ready to accept whatever the Lord's revelation is. And so that's the truth. Proof is not enough. You have to have belief. And at the same time, though, there are others who think that Christianity is only belief. There are some who think that it's just a leap of faith. That there's really no evidence to support Christianity, but you just believe it because it serves whatever practical purpose, I guess. Or, or there's even maybe some of us who you think that the only reason that someone has doubts 
is because of their sin. Of course, sin has a role in doubt. But listen, the disciples don't just come to Thomas and say, hey man, stop suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You know that Jesus is resurrected. Come on, stop sinning. And Thomas says, okay, you're right. I believe. That's not what happens. No, the, the determining factor in changing Thomas from one doubting to one believing is proof. That's what changes. And, and, and in verse 31, well, why does John write a, verse 30? He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. John thinks that these proofs, these examples of Jesus' signs, which demonstrated his deity, that these are enough to convince people to believe. He doesn't just say, listen, you've read this book, now stop suppressing the truth and believe. No, he says, look at the evidence. So it's not just belief, and it's also, though, not just proof, not just reason. It's a combination of both. You have to have both. Jesus comes and gives the most irrefutable evidence, but nevertheless, he calls Thomas to a disposition of humble believing. So that's lesson three. Proof and belief are not mutually exclusive. Uh, Point four is found in verse 28, and it's this belief in Jesus is belief in Jesus as God. Uh, John, his point of the book is to convince people to believe in Christ, but it's not just for them to believe in Christ as anything that they want him to be. Uh, The gospel of John has the highest theology of Jesus in the whole New Testament. It is the clearest uh, articulation of who Jesus truly is as one with the Father and eternal. And so all throughout the book, he's trying to get people to believe in Jesus, but specifically to believe in Jesus as the Lord of all, the uncreated one. And all throughout the book, it's, there's full of examples of John showing that Jesus is God. He says that I and the Father are one. He says that before Abraham was, I am. But there's only twice in the whole book that John just says, Direct, straight up, Jesus is God. There's John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then there's here, the very ending of the main section of the book, where Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. John has bookended it, the book, with these two confessions of Jesus' true identity. He is God, the only God the creator and sustainer of all things, the exact image of the Father. And in that way, too, Thomas is our exemplar. He's not just one who came to believe in Jesus, but he comes to believe in Jesus in all of his glory. And so again, belief in Jesus is belief in Jesus as God. If you or you, you know somebody who believes in Jesus just as a prophet or a good teacher or a lowercase son of lowercase g-o-d, you don't really believe in him. That is insulting to believe that he is anything less than the only God who created all things. And no matter what nice thoughts you might have about him, if he is less than the only God, then you insult him and you do not truly know him. If you truly know the, knew the way this man spoke and the things that he said about himself, you would know that he is the Lord of all the judge of all the earth. And so it's not sufficient to just believe in Jesus as uh, one of the first creatures of God and a very blessed king and stuff. No, he is the Lord, uh, the eternal son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, of the same essence and substance of the Father and the Spirit. 
That's point four, and that's from verse 28. Belief in Jesus is belief, and Jesus is God. And now when we look down at verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is lesson five. There is a blessing to those of us who believe at a distance. Jesus, he's talking directly to us right there, right? Because, yes, we identify with Thomas. We say, yes, we would love to see the Lord right in front of us. That would be wonderful for my faith. And, and that's what Thomas got. He got to see the Lord. And he tells Thomas, listen, you've believed because you've seen me. But then there's going to be many people who are going to believe even though they don't have this privilege of seeing me face to face. And there's a special blessing for them. There's a special blessing and provision of us who do not have the opportunity that Thomas and the other disciples did to see Jesus face to face. Jesus, he, he concedes right here that it's easier to believe if you've seen. And that's the same thing that John says in 1 John. He says, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother who you have seen? It's an intuitive thing, but it's nice that the Bible confirms it. It's easier, it would be easier to believe in this stuff if it was right before our eyes. But nevertheless, that's not an obstacle for the Lord. He's made a special provision for us who don't have that privilege. And he's pronounced a blessing on us. Blessed are us who believe, though we have not seen. He knows the, the challenge that is uh, before us. As Hebrews 11 says, uh, to see the things unseen as the cause of the things seen. It's a, it's a difficult concept, but nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He gives us uh, the faith that we need to believe in that. He gives us the conviction that passes understanding. And uh, we will receive a special reward for believing, though we are disadvantaged. There is a special blessing to us who believe. And, and now from this, this story of Thomas, it, it, it ended right there in verse 29. John is saying, listen, do any of you still have objections? You still would like to see Jesus in the flesh? Well, let me tell you about one of our fellow disciples who had that same problem, yet Jesus appeared to him and even he believed. And now in verse 30, he goes straight to direct address. He says, and I have written down these signs so that you would come and believe just like Thomas. Just like Thomas had that experience where he got to see Jesus in the flesh. So I've written this whole account of Jesus' life so that you can see miracle after miracle that will convince you that Jesus is the Christ so you can become like Thomas and go from doubting to believing. And for thousands of years, Thomases have come to believe just like the original one. Moved from doubt to belief by looking at the evidence and seeing, yes, Jesus is Lord. He is alive. He is the God of the universe. And he's everything to me. That, that's lesson six. There is evidence enough to convince the skeptics. No matter what form your unbelief takes, the gospel of John can convince you with the proof. It is sufficient evidence. It is sufficient proof. And I think this is relevant when it comes to evangelism. When you're evangelizing to somebody, you're not trying to convince them that your favorite sports team is really the best. You're not trying to convince them that your uh, presidential favorite actually has a better platform than the other one. You're convincing them of something that is absolutely true and there is sufficient evidence to convince somebody of it. And yes, when someone is presented with this clear evidence, if they continue to refuse and continue to not believe, well, there's someone who is sinning. There's someone who is not believing, but is arrogantly rejecting the faith. But again, you should have confidence. 
You are coming with the truth to people. It's not just an opinion. These evidences, these signs have been convincing people for thousands of years because it's the truth as it is accompanied by the, the Holy Spirit convicting people as they read about these signs. And uh, thinking about this, I think about Matthew chapter 11. It's a very interesting and it's a very somber uh, example of unbelief. There John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to, to have them confirm if Jesus is really the Christ, the Messiah. You know, John probably had the expectation that everybody else did at the day, that the Messiah was going to come and they were going to rule. And John's like, man, I'm, I'm the forerunner of that servant. I'm, his, I'm the guy he said is the greatest of all the prophets. You'd think I'd be doing pretty hot right now if I'm the friend of the Messiah. But here I'm in prison. Did I miss something? I, I, I thought everything suggested that Jesus was God, but I make mistakes. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, ask him, are you the one or should we wait for another? And again, Jesus has, has mercy on those who doubt. But it's very interesting what he says. He says, go tell John what you see. The blind are healed, the lame can walk, lepers are cleansed. Jesus says, look at the signs. And that's the same to us. So if we're wondering, Jesus, are you really Lord? Jesus, do you really love me? Jesus, do you really care for me? Go look at the signs. And be reminded that he is Lord and that he is risen from the dead. That's the point here. It's shown Jesus is alive. And so death has been defeated. Death was our penalty for our sin. The point where when we die, we would lose everything. But because of the resurrection, Jesus has transformed death from the loss of everything to a door which we now pass through to gain everything. And it's the most wonderful truth. And it's by believing in this that we, like Jesus, will be resurrected. Look, that's how it ends in verse 31. That by believing, you may have life in his name. That the life definitely has connotations that Jesus has life. But it's, it's worth looking back at how John has used the word life throughout the gospel. In, uh, in John chapter 1 verse 3, he said that the word had life and his life was the light of men. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief comes in to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In John chapter 11, Martha, weeping about the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then in John chapter 17, this is the high point, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one you have sent. Well, what does life mean? It is, yes, eternal life. It's a quantity of life. It's life that never ends. But it's more than that. It's a quality of life. It's, it's abundant life. It's life to the max. And where does that life come from? It's from knowing God. That is life. That's what you were created for, is to behold the glory of the Lord, and from that, receive joy. That, that's the life of God. Before anything else created, what God has always been doing is having this joy of the Father, knowing the Son through the Spirit, and they rejoice and they love each other. And our life is going and enjoying that life where we likewise behold the Son and we have fullness of joy and we love him.
And that's what we've, that's what we've been granted. And it's the truth. You know, it, it's, it's the most wonderful truth that anybody could ever possibly think of. And you know, sometimes you can think, well, is it too good to be true? It's not. Jesus is really alive. He is really Lord. No matter what you suffer in this life, it'll be nothing compared with the glory that will soon be revealed when you die. Eternal blessing and felicity is just down the road. It's a wonderful truth. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Please give us firmer conviction and firmer faith that you are truly Lord, that you are alive, and therefore we have nothing to fear. Give us complete joy in knowing that we have life, eternal life, no matter what may come in this life. Uh, Please strengthen us and, and give us the boldness to carry this truth to the world that you are alive and you are God and every knee must bow and confess that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.